Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Welcome listeners to the I Am Speaking with Shailshi and Kosha podcast. This is the final episode of the series of birthday surprises for Shailushi. Her birthday is today, April 30th. Today is a very special episode. We say this every single episode. We say how special it is. We love our guests so much, but this episode is so completely dear to me and to my family because it is with Dr. Amina Ahmed. She is the oncologist at Rush Hospital in Chicago that saved my sister's life. She is the reason, as you hear Shayla, she say, that she continues to be able to have birthdays. Honestly, she comes from a background where she really had to work very hard to be taken seriously. And thank God that she worked that hard to be taken seriously because she saved my sister's life. So this is an awesome episode. Dr. Ahmed or Amina, as she insists that we call her, is so great and was so fun to talk to. And also, Shailoshi, you have a person who wants to give a very special message to you. Hi, my name's Anushka. I'm Kosha's daughter. I just want to say that I like the podcast and um, I love you, Mama. My Mama is special to me. Um, Our talks are pretty special. Um, She makes me feel Um, someone's listening to me. Someone's trying to understand me. Happy birthday, Mama. I love you. And there you go. A very, very special birthday month for Shailushi, Baxi Ritchie, and for all of us. We're just so happy that Shailushi is here. Happy birthday, Shailushi, and please enjoy Dr. Amina Ahmed. She is speaking. I mean, we can go through the same song and dance again. No, we won't. About whether but I know the person or I'm not. I'm super excited about this one. Yeah. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be really happy. Okay. Especially because it's like the last one. Is this one. Cecile Richards? 
No. <laughs> you asked me that on the first one. You're going to be very excited. Yes. This is awesome. I, I I'm, I'm, it's like my coup de grace too. Like I'm super excited about this. You are. Okay. So it is your last birthday surprise. Yep. And you won't have to deal with it for at least a year if we ever do this again anyway. So <laughs> it's going to get harder and harder. Like if we do it again next year. No, yeah. there are a ton of people. We only had five people. So say like we only had a handful of people that surprised you. Sure. That's fair. There's a lot of people in your life. Anyway, close your eyes. Okay. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one, undo. Wow. Now that is something else. Hi. Hi. How are you? you? (laughs) Um, I'm awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I don't know how you got Dr. Ahmed to join because she's so freaking busy. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. (laughs) So I, uh, we know some people in common. I, I read, so this is Dr. Amina Ahmed, yes. who this is my favorite. This is one of my favorites because <laughs> it, it, we're celebrating Shailish's birthday and happy birthday. Thank you. Dr. Ahmed saved Shailish's life. Yes. Dr. Ahmed is the reason why I still have birthdays to have. Exactly. So I reached out to Sheetal Kircher, who is an oncologist at Northwestern. She was like, oh, there's an, she's like, this is a great idea. Uh, there's an ASCO, like there's a, you know, association is, of oncologists. That's how you found Yeah. Because I was like, if I had called your office, I think they would have been like, um, she's busy. Like, I don't think, you know. Dr. Med is very busy. And so Dr. Dr. Sheetal Kircher, who is our cousin, got found. Who I like very much. She's wonderful. So yes, yeah. And she got um, her email address and I reached out to, to Dr. Emma that way. This is like a combo, like birthday surprise expert to interview. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be weird because your name says Amina, but I can't call you Amina. You have to call me Amina. Uh, but you're my doctor. I know. <laughs> but uh, then I'm going to want to call you that when I see you. You totally can. Okay. Don't worry. Right. It's like, okay. I'm good with that. Yeah. 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 We're like right here. Like every time I see her, I'm like, Hey, like we like almost don't actually talk about what's going on. We just talk I know about that's, <laughs> and that's the thing I have to like, make sure we cover like all our bases, but then I really enjoy our time together. Yeah. It would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just like, okay, no cancer. Clean, clean, clean. Hey, so yeah, how yeah. are you? <laughs> Right. That's actually kind of how it is. She's like, yeah, your looks fine. Okay. We have to do the exam, but it's always like, how are you? How are the kids? We, last time we talked about like your older daughter is looking at going to college now and like yes. what the college search projects is like and <laughs> how like, it's so hard now. It's, I mean, impossible. It's just so hard. And now we have a, pu- I have a puppy. <gasps> she sent me a, a picture. Puppy. That puppy is why? Cute. Why did you get a puppy? <laughs> I know. Do you need more stuff to do? <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I've never had an animal and my youngest, you know, I felt like she needed some kind of emotional support. I mean, I felt that like it was, and here we are. So she's not here and I'm taking care of the puppy. So, of course. Of so. course. There was a, there was a time actually where I was like, I think I need a dog. Do you remember this Kosha? Yeah. Oh yeah. It was yeah. Shortly after we had moved here from California and my son who was going into kindergarten at the time, he and I had been like this, like just entwined. He has autism. And so we had been doing a lot of stuff together, therapy and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then he went to kindergarten and he just like 
leveled up, right? And he wasn't like the same, mom, I love you. Not that he's not like that, but it's like he started focusing outwards. Yes. And I was like, I think I need a dog. And my best friend is like, you know, you don't need a dog. Why do you want a dog? And finally, finally, I was like, well, I want somebody to love me unconditionally. (laughs) And she goes, don't get a dog. That's not why you get a dog. And I was like, oh, you're right. You're right. So, wow. So listeners, uh, we've alluded to it a little bit. Today, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Amina Ahmed, who is my oncologist, also one of the top gynae oncologists in all of Chicago. And, and as Kosha alluded to, the reason why I'm still here and the reason why I still get to celebrate a birthday. Um, I'm honored, by the way, that you guys invited me to this. Oh, my God. So you know, oh. On your birthday. You, I'm, I'm <laughs> completely very serious. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. so our, our podcast is really, I mean, you fit into it so many. anyway. Yeah. It's in so many ways. So one of the things that we do is called I Am Speaking. And, you know, the whole philosophy was to start talking to people who have been othered, right? Who have, who have been kind of shut out of the room or left off, you know, without a seat at the table. And as a, as a woman, as a woman of color, you've had to claw your way for a seat at those tables. Yes. Your parents are immigrants, but you're the first generation, right? In the States. Correct. That's right. Where are your parents from? So my parents were from Pakistan. Oh, Pakistan. Okay. Yep. 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 Yeah. So you are very similar to, to Shayla Shinai in terms of like, just that cultural clash that you had culture gender all of that right like I grew up you know helping my mom in the kitchen cleaning doing everything and I have two younger brothers and I would be like so why aren't they doing anything and they're like oh well their wives will do it you know for them when they grow up kind of that was the mentality yeah that I grew up in right and and it's still there to to this day like honestly I think I worked as hard as I worked in my life to make my parents proud. I was the first born, right? You know, my parents are immigrants. You guys are very well versed in this idea that we do what we do to make our parents proud. Then that's what happened. And then eventually along the way, you're doing it to make yourself proud, right? I mean, you're doing it for a greater good. I mean, it's, it becomes, it morphs into something. You don't really know that when you're that young. In our type of it, culture because it's very you never spoke to your parents outside of certain things like I never really communicated with my parents about anything they never asked me how I felt mm-hmm. <laughs> like very different than what we talk about our kids right how do you feel what's going on da, da. none of and like validating <laughs> like I know in our like Shailshi and I have talked about this that in our house I remember like not being allowed actually to be tired cry be in a bad mood it was very much like, oh yeah, totally. What do you have to be in a bad mood about, right? Like you not only didn't get your feelings validated, but they were like invalidated. Like you weren't allowed for those things. Totally. Like you know, you have it so great, which we did. I mean, I'm not saying you know we're obviously very lucky, very very lucky. But there was no bad mood. There was never making this kind of face, like pouting. You know, that was like a very common thing my mom would tell me. You know, and so I think there's truth in in it. Um, but I think obviously we're taking it, we're just, we're not as stressed as our parents either. Right. Like, I don't want to say, mm-hmm. I mean, immigrants have a different stress than we do. Um, so anyway, I'm grateful for my upbringing. It's made me who I am. Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of think about it that way, that toughness 
carries through and never it doesn't actually go away mm-hmm. yeah uh, so there's yeah and that work ethic also stays you know outside of my parents wanting to know how I'm doing in school and if I was staying out of trouble they actually didn't want to know anything else and I was like so, you know, we've got kids about the same age and I actually love that my older kid talks to me yeah. and will be like, this thing happened that this person's go or this is amazing. We went out to dinner on Friday night and they start with, um, mom, I got to share this gossip with you. And I was like, <laughs> that feels like, uh, you know, a brownie point for me because as a mom, because I would never have thought to say that no, to my parents. No. And you're doing it right. Yeah. It's just all like, let me tell you this thing that's going on. Cause I don't know who else to talk to. And I was like, this is so great. What a great moment. And my seven-year-old is also like, she'll be like, can I tell you what happened at school today? And I was like, absolutely. Like, <laughs> you know, because I remember my, my parents being like, how's school today? And they didn't actually want to know, right? Like they didn't want to know like, well, this person teased this person, or, you know, I got the answer right on this. It was like, it was fine. It was good. Right. And, but now she's like digging into the details and I'm like, Oh my God, keep talking girl. You know, like I want to hear this. Absolutely. So how did you, how, what's your career path? Like it's, you know, it sounds like we started in really similar places. I'm not sure that our mom ever told us we had to learn how to cook and clean because we were (laughs) women, but it was certainly like, and it was weird because by the time my brother came along, he was like the baby. Oh, and then you can imagine, yeah, that they're like treasured, right? That's the other, yeah. Well, and she got pregnant without trying after my, and my little sister had, you know, some medical issues. So like, then he came around healthy, the only boy, it was like, he was a medical quote, Marvel. The first son of the first son. Right. So my dad's a first son and then he was the first grandson to be born. It was like this big. So deal he's like and... still pooping gold. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, was... yeah. They still do. My brothers still do. Even when I'm like, what is happening here? You, you know, but <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. But to Shalushi's point, it wasn't explicit, like, but it was very much implied. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was explicit. My mom doesn't, she's not really shy. <laughs> so there's, a, you know, there's a lot of that. Um, so I would say career wise. So my parents are physicians, both of them. So even in that situation, my mom being a professional, that was still so ingrained in her, you know, I mean, she, and when I go and I see, when I go overseas, um, I, I would see that with my grandparents and she only has one brother and there's four sisters. And so it was very much, so that's, it was all in, I was really part of her. Um, so growing up, I took care of my brothers, very responsible. I mean, the whole, you know, the normal. And then my parents really, I think, didn't want me to go into medicine. They were just, I think, I don't know if they were just worried I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, was it a gender bias? I really I wasn't really sure, but that made me want to do it more. Oh yeah. I can see yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, it's right. yeah. What's the thing you're telling me I shouldn't do? Well, guess what right. I'm going to do. That's exactly. <laughs> you and Shayla, she really are cut from the same cloth. Same cloth. Cause I was like, oh no, you can't tell me no. And so that's kind of the path. And then I knew really early on, I wanted to go into women's health 
I knew that, you know, I remember learning about IVF and test two babies, you know, that was the, that was the name back then. And it was just so interesting to me. And I knew I wanted to help women um, at large, because I think if you can help, I mean, I think there's such a disadvantage, hopefully not as much now, but there's such a disadvantage of being a woman in general, um, in healthcare, people completely uh, disregard what you have to say about your own body. It's rampant. It's even rampant now. And that's what I tell patients. I was just reading an article in the Atlantic about how men's pain is taken way more seriously and if way more seriously. And it's like, and then it's like men and women and then like white women, black women at the very Yes, bottom. yes. Women of color, it's even worse. Oh, it's even worse. I mean, how many times do I have to hear women saying that I've had so many GI complaints, bloating, various pains, never taken seriously, seen so many doctors, and then they come to see me with metastatic ovarian cancer. Oh God, that's heartbreaking. That's how, that's, that's what happens. And this is in today's day. I, yeah, I just read an article about a woman. She was, a, she was overweight, not a little, she was obese and she couldn't eat anything. Like, she's like, I can't keep anything down. I, I'm not hungry. I can't eat anything. And the doctor actually told her, well, that'll help you lose weight then. And then she ended up having like, it wasn't stomach cancer, but it was some major GI situation that like needed medical treatments. And you should, I mean, I, I'm all for, you know, I work in, I work in, um, mental health in healthcare for like big pharma, but I'm like, I'm all for advocating for your own healthcare. You have to, you have to, but when you're constantly being told you're wrong, I'm right. Especially as a woman, like I don't, I understand why people stop advocating for themselves. No one's listening to me. Well, hundred percent. So women in general, I think there's a disadvantage. I think confidence is an issue always because you, you have been told that you aren't good enough for how long of your life. And it takes a long time to really build that confidence where you can advocate for yourself. Really that's, so I think our goal in general to all women, our girls, et cetera, to say, advocate for yourself young. Don't ever tell anybody, like if somebody, if you say no, it's no. If somebody says you can't do it, you can, right? I mean, there's all of that. Like you have to have, and I always tell my girls, I said, you need to be your biggest champion. Everyone is going to tell you, be negative towards you. You don't need to be negative towards yourself. I remember when I was in middle school, this is the funny part. My mom is kind of a bit, she's, I love my mom very much, but she's, you know, she is what she is. But um, I, I thought about going I thought about like trying out for the cheerleading team. You can imagine me like when I was in middle school, just because it was like my friends were doing it. <laughs> we we right? all so, of us. We didn't right, all right. Because I was like, oh, whatever. And that, and I am a little embarrassed in the sense that I even thought about it. But at the time it was like, and the my mom's like, do. Yeah. it was a thing to do. My mom's like, oh, no, no, no. She's like, you are your biggest cheerleader. <laughs> I was like, uh. so it was a disconnect because she knew, because she had to, she, she was an anesthesiologist. Was she saying like, don't cheer for other people, cheer for yourself? Yes. Or was she saying like, kind of. you're not good I mean, enough to cheer for other people. You just cheer for yourself. <laughs> no, just cheer for yourself. Okay, like, you know, okay. kind of thing, right? I think culturally she kind of, she, she really wanted me to be well-versed in everything, in the house, at work. It was all men in her field. There was no women ever for years and years and years. 
and she had to fight like, you know, really hard. Um, so, but I thought that was pretty funny, but I think that that you need people to tell you that you're good enough, you know, you need physicians in healthcare to tell women, your patients, it's okay to advocate for yourself. It's okay to get a second opinion. I never say no to that ever. If anything, I'll help you. You never should have a regret. That's kind of my thought, you know, don't have regrets ever. I have to tell you a really funny story I know, about, I, when you smile, I know exactly <laughs> about getting a second opinion. So I came to see you was October of 2018, 2017. And you're like, okay, so it's probably not this thing, but it's a 5% chance. It's this thing. And I just remember, like I was telling my Justin in the, in, as I was walking to the garage, I was like, this is ridiculous. I was like, there is no other cancer in which the treatment and the diagnosis are the same thing. Like we don't diagnose lung cancer by saying, let's take out your lung and look at it. I know. I was having like a pissy fit about like, this would only happen in women's healthcare. Like I was already going off about it. And he's like, <laughs> okay, so what are we supposed to do now? It's like the treatment, you know, the diagnosis requires a hysterectomy. The treatment's also a hysterectomy. So I'm getting hysterectomy. <laughs> right. And since we're done having kids, it's not a problem. Right. And then I told my dad about, I told my parents about this. And of course they're all like, uh, but my dad goes, um, do you want to get a sec? I would like you to get a second opinion. There's this gynecologist in South Bend, Indiana that I would like you to go to see. And I said, dad, I'm not going to see some random gynecologist in South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> I was like, that guy sends his patients here. I'm like, Rush is a level three, like cancer center. I'm like, what do you do? It's like, I'm not going to see some rando that you know. <laughs> He's not going to tell me anything that Dr. Ahmed isn't saying. Also, the thing is, Dr. Ahmed is, or Amina, I'm sorry. Amina was saying, we don't know what it is. We have to find out. She wasn't saying, <laughs> the, the reason you get a second opinion is when someone says it's cancer. You know what? I'm just going to check. With someone saying, we don't know what it is. We have to find out. That is, you are getting a second opinion by finding out. <laughs> right dad you know I mean the thing is he's like a, your dad's doing the best he can do you know what I mean that's he was speaking from fear right like a, a place of like holy shit my daughter you know this is scary I yeah. get all of that dad, also dad you're a doctor like, <laughs> you would never be like okay we don't know what it is go go get a second opinion of, to say we don't know what it is <laughs> to his to his point and just for you know it was because of it was because of the uncertainty um, and I remember the ablation, I think part of it, you know, all of that kind of factored into the idea that we can't get a real diagnosis without taking your uterus out to, for your dad, to your dad's point and to, to the audience, you can't always figure it out and you have to take the, the organ out. Like you can't, cause there's no way to biopsy the inside, you know, adequately. And that was the whole part of it. And so, you know, his second opinion is like, well, do you really need a hysterectomy? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I can understand the emotional, like, I know this guy. I don't know the doctor that you're seeing right now. I know this guy. No, totally right. Can you go see this person? Because I'm scared. Totally right. And my response was, dad, no, I'm not going to see, you know, what it ended up being was I've already gone through eight, it wasn't eight. It was like five tests right? I've already done a biopsy. We've already done this. We've already done that. We've already, nothing was conclusive. And several right, doctors, right. you don't get to see Amina unless you've gone through several doctors, <laughs> right? You don't yes. go into your 
office at Rush and be like, yeah, I just I need a pap smear. I need a pap smear. That's not <laughs> how it works. Right. So she's already like the fourth opinion. Yeah. 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 That's usually, and that's exactly right. You know I mean? So it's just in general, I think, and I tell my patients when they see me, it's just scary. You know, when you come to see me, you may like to see me, which is, I uh, always appreciate that, but you really don't want to see me. I tell patients, you really don't want to see me. Like I'm not the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is, that is one. If there's anything that's sad about my CT scans continuously coming back clear over it's that I don't get to see you very much. Like now it's like twice a year. And then yes, I'm knocking on wood. Yes. yes. About, I don't know if you drink, Amina, but how about we just get together for a cocktail? Instead <laughs> I'd of love that. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. After May 2nd, you'll be done fasting. We'll go have cocktails and we oh, can- yes, that's right. I'm with you. I'm just, I'm so grateful. Your CTs are clean, that you're good. Your exams are good. So that's yeah. the, yeah. It's, well, and I was reflecting to when we were talking to Kosha's friend, Emily, who had synovial sarcoma. Is that synovial is? sarcoma. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And yeah. she was pregnant when they found it. Um, and they're like, oh, it's probably benign. And then when they did the biopsy, they're like, it's not benign. Um, and they gave her a 30% chance of making to 30, right? It was another one of those situations where like you find it too late and you're just screwed. And so we were commiserating on sort of like how this, some of these cancers, they're really sneaky. There's no history. There's no actual, like nobody knows where they come from or why they show up. They just do. And the treatment is also, it's not quite a shot in the dark, but it's like, this is the best we can do right now. Cause we just, we, there's no, there's not enough people who've had this thing to be able to say like, oh, we did a double blind trial and. There won't be, not in the sarcoma world, right? It takes a lot. I mean, it, those sarcoma trials, one, to make it successful, they actually enroll all comers. So it becomes even less specific right. because to get the numbers. It's diluted. So, you know, to then you have to kind of extrapolate what certain ones did in that larger trial. So it's very hard. Exactly. I agree. Right. And so it's just like, all right, this is what we know right now. We'll give a shot. And that, and so I'm on this Facebook group that's got 150 people on it for ESS globally, right? So it's a very small community globally. But then like you read what people are on and they're like, some people are like on mega, some people are on something else. And some people are like, what are they doing for the chest nodules? And some people are like, I've got, it's just this whole, it's like the wild west. <laughs> it's the west. <laughs> it is. And I think it's, 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 it's great that there's people there and support wise, and you can bounce ideas off each other, you know, because then I have patients on ovarian cancer support groups. And then my patients will come and say, well, so-and-so's on this. And what do you think about this? And then I'm like, okay, well, you know, and I go through all the different, you know, various ideas, but at the same time, it's scary. You know, it's scary to kind of know where people are with that disease and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, it's where you're like, they're on this because they're so far gone that this is the only thing that'll work for them right now. Yes. Right. And then to have to like explain that to your patients. Well, I think, you know, the internet in healthcare, it is one of the worst things. It's one of the best and worst things that could ever have happened to to medicine. And my dad tells a story. He was a urologist. Um, He tells a story about how a kid woke up He's like 16, really, really in a ton of pain. Um, he Googled it, realized he might've had testicular torsion. 
got it taken care of within like the hour. And that's like the one time that the internet like actually helped somebody, right? In terms of healthcare. And now it, it has turned, I mean, I would love your, your opinion about this. It has turned self-advocacy into like Google University. And, and a lot of hysteria. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I, so I think, I think the internet in general for everything, not just healthcare, I think has not taught us to be patient, right? Everything is like quick, 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 quick. I think it's not great for our mental health, given a lot of the social media, you know, I mean, like you said, how much can you actually deal with? You get into this support group, you have the highs and the lows tenfold right then. You know, that's a lot for somebody to actually think about. And then the diagnoses, I think it's great to have all that literature at your fingertips. I think that it's very difficult to discern that literature if you haven't actually gone to school for it. And had to read scientific studies and make sense of them. I mean, it's the science, even I'm like, huh? Like I have to read stuff three or four times to be like, okay, I think this is what it's saying, but I'm still not a hundred percent sure. But I think you could easily look at that stuff and be like, this is what it says. You can totally do that, right? Like this is what our, our world has come. You can pull anything you want from the internet to justify your thought. Oh yeah, confirmation bias all the way, right? All right, everywhere. And so then that happened, basically that means, and I'm not saying, my, I love all of my, my patients are wonderful. They come to me with the literature. They ask me to go through it. We go through it together. And I think that helps mitigate a lot of anxiety, you know? And I also then counsel and say, I'm okay with you being on the internet, but I'd be very careful. Mm-hmm. Just be very careful because you can pull anything you want from unreputable journals. You know, you also have to think about that way. Journals publish, there's certain like levels of reputation that publish because the data is good versus others just publish to publish, right? People don't know that. Well, and even was it the, I think the Lancet was the one that published that journal that showed, or the study that showed the connection between autism and vaccines. And that data was all made up and it has caused generational heartbreak and health. And it's still like floating out there, right? Now people are distrusted. I mean, it's such a, it's so stupid. First of all, it's the dumbest thing I ever read. The other stupid thing about it is like that presupposes that you would rather have a child that's susceptible to really awful childhood diseases than a child that's neurodiverse. Or a dead one. Yeah. 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 I'd rather have my child be susceptible to dying from chicken pox or measles or whatever than to have a kid on the spectrum. Amina, can I ask you this too? Not with cancer, but I had some pretty serious infertility to try to have our one kid. At one point I was like in the middle of a miscarriage, right? Like my numbers were, my HCG was dropping and it was like a a matter of days that I'm going to lose this, this pregnancy. And I, of course, I, I, I work in healthcare. I have spent my entire career railing against the internet. Like, don't look up the internet. (laughs) Here are the studies, you know? And of course, what do I do? I get on the internet. And there are support groups and stuff like that who are like anecdotally 
you know, oh my God, my HCG numbers were dropping and my, I was told I was going to have a miscarriage. And then the next week. And then I didn't. And I didn't. So can you talk about this idea of like false hope? when it comes to, especially with like diagnoses, like some of the ones that you have to give. Um, oh yeah. How do you deal with like this idea of like false hope and balancing hope with reality sometimes? Yeah. So I, it's a great question, right? Cause I think, so I always look for the silver lining as an oncologist. I know that sounds kind of a little bit like maybe not, I think it's the right thing because if somebody comes to me with a diagnosis that statistically is not great, but statistically there's also hope, right? How do you get through all of the treatment that I have to put somebody through? If I am not hopeful, how can I like help my patient be hopeful that they're going to get into remission and get through everything I'm going to make them get through because it's a lot. It's not like just a little, right? So in gynecologic oncology, we do the surgery and we do the chemotherapy and we do all of the, and we, you know, we recommend the different kind of radiation therapies, hormonal treatments, et cetera. We do the whole gamut, immunotherapies. And then we also do end of life care, palliative part care. I mean, we, we, that's the part, that's the reason I love what I do. It's hard, but it's lifelong relationships that I have with my patients, you know, and survivorship, et cetera. And so I always have hope. And I tell my patients when there really is no other, there's nothing left, there's nothing else I can do for you. You know, my job is to help you live as long and great as I can. I'll tell you, then we have that conversation. And as women, cause that's who I take care of. Women always want plans. <laughs> they always want a plan. And they always want me to be truthful for them because they have so many people depending on them. That's how that works. Yeah. Um, so it's not false. You know, I think that, I think, I think the internet will give you false anything. You can look up whatever you want to look up to justify your thoughts. Right. But when you speak to your oncologist or your healthcare provider, it shouldn't be false. There should be real hope and positivity there to help you get through what you have to get through. Especially, I think to your point that the internet can give you a false idea of what might be happening, right? So that right. you end up reaching and grasping onto an explanation that makes you feel better, but isn't real, isn't reality. It's like false expectations, right? Hope is never false because to your point, and Sheetal said the same thing is like, okay, if you are hoping or expecting a mere quote miracle cure, and she said, like, I always hope I'm wrong. Totally. I hope that like my statistics, like that you beat the statistics, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's the, it's not the hope that's false. It's the expectations that like, it's you could all, yeah, you could also hope for a long and beautiful life with what you have left. Right. And, and to, and to your point to help your patients, like live as much life as they have left. Yes. And the hope is there you know, the positivity is there and we have to be honest, right? I will never lie to somebody that will always like, that's always, it's always a bad thing. You know what I mean? There's some oncologists that will like, just kind of tiptoe around it or not say anything. You have to be very honest up front. Mm -hmm. This is what you're going to be expecting, you know, and let's just kind of move forward. Yeah. I know that uh, of course I wasn't there 
when this happened, but I know that post-surgery, post-op, you came out and talked to everyone and you're like, no, no, this is without swearing. This is fucking serious. Like it was, it was bad. Um, and, you know, but also reflecting the reality and also saying like, and I think prognosis is pretty good, right? There's, there's sort of the reality. And then you have to ground your hope, your optimism in reality, not in like, and then I'm going to grow wings and fly to the moon. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that is the thing, which is like the internet can give you a ridiculous standard that you could never, ever hit because of oh, this one person, this one time. Okay. But that's not just statistically likely. Let's hope that that's you, but it's not likely it's going to be you. I mean, that's just anecdotal medicine, right? You can't, you people, you can't sustain that, that right. kind of counseling. Yeah. Yeah. I very, I very specifically remember when you came, you came out, the surgery took longer than you thought it was going to, because there was disease everywhere. There's a lot to do. There was a lot to do. Way worse than it yeah, was. There was a lot to do. And then, so you came out into the waiting room and you're like, um, come this way. And I was like, <laughs> fuck like you put you took us if it was like if it was like oh no everything was great everything went fine you would have said it there but the fact that you took us into like our private room I was like oh no I was like and then I was like mom why didn't you stay here like I didn't want like mom you won't be able to handle this but you were I mean it you know to your credit I mean there were a lot of very you're dealing with a lot of emotions, a lot of big, huge emotions, scary emotions. And, you know, you, you really did. You're like, okay, so it was everywhere. And you said, you know, I totally cleaned it out. This is what I had to do. And there is no evidence, no visible evidence of disease left right now. And, and then you were like, yeah, she's going to have to be on Megase and she's going to bitch about it. She's going to moan about it, but it's <laughs> yeah. your job. Like she did say this, Shulji. Yeah, no, I believe it because I know, because I know, because I bitched and moaned about it for two years when I had to be a man. That's right. That's what I remember. I was like, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it's not going to be easy for her. It's actually much easier without the ovaries. It was real because then it was like being on PMS all the time. All the time. Yeah. No, but Dr. Ahmed was like, and this was, I thought really important and you didn't quite say it like this, but I'm just going to put it, I'm going to paraphrase it, but you were like, she's going to hate it. She's going to bitch. She's going to moan, but, and it's your job to make sure that she still stays on it. Like as her family, we would rather have you alive and pissy than dead and chill. <laughs> but I would say in my defense, this second round, I was like, all right, I got to be on Megas. Yeah, like, right, right, right. Right. You were like, you were a different person the second you were like, I'm on it. I'm not, I even tried to give you like loopholes. You're like, nope, I'm staying <laughs> on the dose. It was a really, <laughs> I'm like, it was a really different experience, right? The first time when we did the hysterectomy, it was like, oh, we didn't see anything at first. No, there was nothing. Yeah. That you could visibly see. And then, you know, even the slides that they did the quick, the, what is it called? The quick pathology report was nothing. And then 10 days later, it's like, oh, we were seeing nests of d disease. So we caught it early. That was the, our sort of shared understanding. Like, oh, we just got there. Oh my God, isn't that amazing? And so that's why I was like, oh, I lucked out. And I still had my ovaries. So it was like a much different experience. Second time around where I'm like, it was everywhere. You had to take out both of my ovaries. One was necrotic. I had two inches of my colon resected. I was like, no, there's no effing around this time. 
Yeah. Whatever, whatever misery from the day to day it takes, I am not effing, I'm not going to veer off the prescribed course because who knows what the hell is going to happen. Yeah. It's still in there. Right. And I think that's one of the, for me, the hardest thing to talk about with this is like, Oh, are you in remission? No, I'm never actually in remission. You know, you, so I would say to you, you technically, so remission is no clinical evidence of disease. Okay. So I am in remission. So you are in remission. Yeah. But I'm not cured, I guess. Correct. Okay. That's, that's the hard part, right? And patients will ask me, so can I be in remission for years and years and years and years and not be cured? And I'm going to say, yeah. And I'm also going to say, I hate to, t- I, I'm very, very averse to telling anybody that they're cured because you just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know. And so, and that's true in life. We don't know like no. what's going to happen. That's true. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit, the semantics of it to me, I'm just particular about that. I appreciate that. Right. Cause I've been saying, oh, I'm not in remission, but if, if what the definition of remission is no clinical evidence of disease and yes, I am in remission, then you are, but I'm not cured. And I never, ever approached it like, cause if I have to be on Megas the rest of my life, I can't be cured. Right. You cannot take a medicine that suppresses a disease and also be cured. It's just not so. Possible. So you can, you can akin that to being diabetic. I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to say that. Right. Asthmatic, any of, no, any of those things. Any of those chronic disease type things. You have it controlled. It's good. You're living your life. Yeah. That's what we want. You know, that's, yeah. And being alive means that there are some side effects, right? And then it's sort of like, how do you manage the side effects? And what do you do about this or that or a third thing? But, you know, it's better to have to figure that stuff out than than be dead the alternative yes. <laughs> yeah then to be and not just dead the dead is different you know you're dead you're dead whatever i mean i say that flippantly because i'm not but um it's the dying it's not the dead for me it's the dying where you know that you're going to be gone and that you're leaving people behind that's the thing that's the hardest for like moms and wives and sisters and you know what i mean like i think that and i, I can't i don't want to say it I, only because I treat women, but I don't want to say about dads and husbands, et cetera. But, but honestly, when wives pass away, I should have like a husband's club. Like I should have a support group for husbands. I've had so many. It's just like, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. No. I was telling my mom about that. And this is like a public health stat from a long time ago. I'm sure you know it, which is that like, especially as men get older, you know, couples get older in 60s, 70s. If the wife dies, the husband usually dies in a year, within a year. Like there's just, and if the husband dies, the wife can keep living for a very long time. Um, but wives usually are res- responsible for making medical appointments, to, you know, cooking, cleaning, all of the sort of like day to day. Like, did you take your vitamins? Did you take your medicine? And the social life stuff. And then when wives go away, it's like everything it just gets contracted. It has to. So I had a patient this is kind of one of the, it's just what happens with me and just my, I think my personality and what I do. Uh, I had a young patient who died um, and her daughter was like 15 or 16 when she passed away. Um, And so then I think based on her wishes and her husband's wishes, I kind of like almost became like, you know, like an aunt to this, right? So last night I went out to dinner, it's her, she turned 20, you know, and her dad's there. And, you know, we become pretty close friends, which I think is good for her dad and her husband, like the husband. But to that point, 
since his wife's passed away, everything has become very streamlined, you know, like a lot of just being lost, right? Um, and so my husband says, so Josh was like, if you pass away, he's like, 85% of what we, we do to day to day is going away. He's like, I would not be able to do so much of what you're, you know, I mean, which is true. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's, I think that's what, to your point, the dying, that's what really is a burden to many patients of mine is how is this going to continue without me? Yeah. October, 2019, when we were looking at, at, you know, when you found that lesion and you're like, we need to do a whole bunch of other tests. I remember the thing I was freaked out the most about is I don't want to miss it. I've got kids that are going into teenage years. I'm, I don't want to miss that. What are, what are they going to do without me? Yeah. Right? right. Justin can manage. He's an adult. He'll figure it out. Right. And what he basically said is, well, I would just hire someone to do all the stuff that you do, which is fine. You can hire a cook and a blah, 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 blah. Can you hire a mom? You cannot hire a mom. Right. And this is before Isha came out as non-binary. So I was like, well, who's going to teach Isha to like put on makeup? I mean, I've got sisters and, but I'm just like, who's going to do the momming stuff? I, and I don't want to miss that. Yeah. You don't. I don't. And I, I was not on every single thing that's possible. I have been so incredibly lucky based on what you and I had sort of talked about. Like I probably had, it's probably like spreading for like six to seven years. It was not good. Yeah. It was well. And that the sort of prognosis is like five years for most patients. And I, maybe I told you that when I came to see you the first time, my brother's attendings mom was diagnosed with the same thing. When I came to see you the second time, she had already passed away. It's that fast, right? I mean, you say that all the time. By the time women come to see me, it's already, it's so spread everywhere because it's like just gen, these general abdominal symptoms. Well, this is what happened. So like, just say, so the patient that like my, the daughter, the patient's daughter, you know, had the same diagnosis, but she had a high grade ESS and you have a low grade. So thankfully yours is different. You know, hers was very fast, same thing. And she had complaints and people blew it off, bleeding. Like vaginal bleeding after a certain age, it's abnormal. If you were having abnormal bleeding, heavy periods or abnormal bleeding after age 40, that is now abnormal. Red flag. People even say 35 now. Well, and I got to tell you, the only reason I think that my complaints got elevated is because I'd had that ablation. And so when I went to see my regular gynae, I was like, I shouldn't have to go to the ER to get fluids. And she's like, oh, no, no, you've had an ablation. That shouldn't be the thing. But I think that if I had said, I mean, I had abnormal bleeding when I was 36. This is all kind of kicked in around 36 and 37. They were like, oh, let's just do an ablation without actually assessing what might be causing this. That's not right. Exactly. You should have had biopsy. You should have had all the, this happens very routinely. It was Kaiser. And so I think, you know, Kaiser does really, really well with standard practice care. This is outside the standard practice of care. So they were like, well, let's just do this basics. I did not have you on to discuss how women are fucked over in healthcare, <laughs> but it is something 
that I think oh, we yeah. need to talk about more. And I'm, I'm so happy that we're talking about it. And you're, you're truly an expert, in, not fucking over women, but dealing <laughs> with women who have been fucked over. But well, unfortunately it's true. Like yeah, I, exactly. everybody who comes sees me is there's like, like you said, multiple doctors, a, a and laundry multiple list. Things. Right. Yes. Their, their files are, you know, like, like inches thick. Right. And so for example, like with my infertility, I was like, something is wrong. And my doctor at the time was like, you just have to, I, first of all, fucking hate when people tell me to relax. Right. Yeah. You should never, never tell anybody that you just need to relax. That works really well for all women. Right. Just, just (laughs) relax. I will fuck you up. Relax. Women have been in the most stressful of situations. So please do not tell me that it is my stress level that is making me not get pregnant. And I really had to advocate for myself. And I'm pretty sure that my doctor at the time sent me to my, you know, infertility endocrinologist because she was tired of hearing from me. Lo and behold, infertility, right? And a year and a half later and multiple injections and multiple miscarriages, blah, blah, blah. Well, now I have chronic fatigue. I got my blood work done and my doctor is like, you're all, everything is in the normal range. So we'll do your blood work again next year. But I still am fatigued. Like there's got to be, what is that next step? Well, your symptoms can be explained by this or it's not this. So we can't do anything. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know what can be done, but whatever is happening now is not good enough, I guess. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. How to make it better. I think you start young, meaning, you know, right. I think you, like I said, you have to start young. Women have to have different, their confidence levels have to be somewhat better, you know, but then conversely, it's funny because then physicians, I think my generation is pretty good about making sure people get their, you know, everybody understands what's going to happen. Your questions are answered, et cetera. But we still have other generations of physicians that don't want to deal with that at all ever. Right. And then you have the younger generation that I think is somewhat overwhelmed with it too. I mean, there's something to, to that. I don't know. I don't want to generalize it, but yeah. Can you just fix the entire healthcare system for us, please? You and Thurston. Yeah, yes. Oh my God, you'd be perfect. One of my really, really good friends from high school, we've known each other for 30 years. I can't even remember all the stuff he does, but he's like head of integrative medicine at Harvard. Like, and so one of the things that he's talked a lot about is like, we have to bring our full selves to the work that we do. And we can't compartmentalize our own emotional health from the work, how we engage with patients. You can't. It's impossible. Do I take patients home with me? Yes. All the time. Do I wake up at three or four in the morning thinking about patient stuff? Yes. Do I, am I sending emails at that time? Yes. Is that healthy? Probably not. But- I would like to just point out that when you say, are you taking patients home? You mean in your mind. In your mind, <laughs> not physically. Our, our <laughs> listeners cannot see your hand gestures. She pointed to her brain. She pointed to her head. Is she thinking about patients after yeah. work? Yes. yes. Do not yes. call any, don't call any AMA boards. Yeah. Medical. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, right. right. You, so, take, you take home their stories. I take home. I take, yeah. And I think about them and I think about, and I think what he said about making sure that you're doing this hundred percent, you're hundred percent vested is what he's getting at. Yes. The idea that they say you can compartmentalize yourself as an oncologist, I think is not right. 
uh, and I and somebody told me this years ago when I was interviewing at fellowship. I remember it was at Ohio State, and the physician there said it only gets harder the older you get and the longer you do this. Totally. Well, I can imagine just what you said. Like, look, I see my patients for a lifetime. Yeah, it only right? gets harder. So if you start seeing someone at thirty and they whatever their their prognosis is good, you're still going to see them until they die of whatever they die of. It's true. You know, I have patients who thankfully don't die of their cancer. They die of Parkinson's. Normal things that older people. Normal things, you know, like I got an email from one of my patients, you know, obviously I love you, you, et cetera. Thank you for all your care. I'm not going to see you anymore because her Parkinson's is so bad. Oh, right. And that's like a goodbye for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. So we could go in so many different directions about this, but I'm really curious (laughs) about what you're doing now, right? So I know you're super busy. So yes, you've got so many things on your plate. You're like a big time CEO at Rush now. So I'm the CMO for this cancer center. I'm also the service line director for all of cancer at Rush. Um, What we're doing right now and my part, something that I really love is I really want to build our supportive oncology services. We have supportive oncology. We have integrative medicine, a lot of supportive oncology, psychosocial medicine and support for our patients, which is really needed and really dedicated towards our oncology patients. It's not just psychology services at large, um, but we're expanding it to having, you know, ger- geriatric and frailty clinics, you know, rehab medicine for our patients with cancer specific to cancer. And so, you know, our survivorship program, you know, and all of the, you know, you go through therapy, right? You have to be able to deal with the toxicity of treatment. And so we need to start really making sure that we have those services available. So those are all the things I'm working on, you know, in my administrative roles, in addition to my clinical practice. But you cannot add more hours in the day. Are you seeing fewer patients or taking on fewer new patients or something like that? I think probably if you looked at me pre-pandemic to now, because I've been doing these administrative roles now for over two years, I'm probably about 30% less busy, but the caveat was I was already at like 150%, right? So I've come down, <laughs> I've, already, I've come down um, because I have to. Uh, I don't know that I'm gonna come down much more because I really do enjoy what I do. You know, I mean, I can't, it's hard to, you're not a part-time oncologist. It's hard to do that. Yeah, no, she thought said that too. One of the things that she was saying is like, sometimes it's so hard to leave work at work that she's like, I can't even deal with anything when I come home. Like one of the complaints that we have about our lovely cousin, she thought is that you can text her. She will literally look at the text and put the phone down. And you're like, she though, she though, you just have to like, keep like poking at her until you can get a response. And she's you no. Know, so when we interviewed her, she was like, I just, sometimes it's just, I am so done. I'm so empty. I cannot do anymore. She's right. I'm so done being needed. I'm so done being needed, you know, and, and I have the mentality of, I want all my inboxes and my texts done and answered before I go to bed because there's another day tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting to do that, but I do that. But the idea of so, so done being needed, you have, I don't know how you work through that. I have those, those periods where you're like, don't ask me, I can't help you. 
I just saw 40 patients in a day, you know, I'm done. You know, there's some, you have to have some, some time for yourself. It's self-preservation. We all need it. You know, do you think it's as a woman with children, as Sheetal is too, it, it exacerbates that I'm done being needed. Cause I know every mom has probably been through that stage where I'm like, Oh my God, don't ask me for one more goddamn thing. <laughs> I know. I've, I've done that. Like I've given myself a timeout. I'm like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going and putting my legs up and don't ask me. I don't care. <laughs> like I've said that to my kids. Yeah. <laughs> if you are alive at the end of this day, it's going to be a success. So, <laughs> but then you're yeah. doing that. I mean, there's also the fact that you're also doing that kind of caretaking work for your patients as well. It isn't a like, take this, take two of these and call me in the morning type work. It's very nurturing, coaching. A lot of handholding, yeah. A lot. It's gonna be fine. Like, even if you're like, this is gonna be hell. You sort of like, you have to, ex- you can't be like, you know what is just like, there's realism, but there's also like brashness and bluntness, which I'm sure doesn't go over that well. When you're talking to a client like, dude, this is going to really suck for you, right? Like <laughs> there's a way of saying it that is a little bit more gentle. And even that's exhausting, right? Where you're just constantly like having to manage and edit yourself, even if you're saying the truth. And then you go home and then you're like, and now who needs what from me? You know, I'll tell you probably, and this is, it's kind of sometimes my husband gets frustrated with me, probably work and my, my patients get my best hours. You know, so when you're, so when your cousin sees you guys texting her, She's like, you really don't need me. <laughs> like I've given my best to the people that actually do need me. Right. You guys are going to take a backseat for a little bit. My family knows this. They know that. Right. Um, but at the same time, that's not fair to them. So I have to remind myself that I'm like, okay, get myself something really bad to eat for myself and I'll get some <laughs> energy from it, yeah. you know, and then I'll, <laughs> and then I'll deal with whatever I have to deal with. And for me, I might have a little bit of a luxury. My kids are a little older. They've gotten past a point of there's, they're always needy, right? But there's some. It's a different independ- need. It's a little different now. How old are your kids? Going to be 17 and going to be 12. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's just like two years up on, on Isha and Lex. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I'm kind of. They're still needy, just they in are, different ways, in different in ways. Different ways, in different ways. But I think. Um, the work around that is like you said, cutting back a couple hours here and there at work. So then you can have some of your best hours left over for family. You have to have some, you know, now anything for yourself, (laughs) that kind of, you know, that's like completely last. Yeah. Always. That's, I mean, that's every, that's almost every mom ever. hundred percent. I only know one mom who was better at that than most people who's my mother-in-law who was basically like she would get home from work and so my husband says like she would get home from work and she would be like she had her spot on the sofa and she would read the newspaper smoke a cigarette and have a beer and nobody could talk to her for that hour and I was like wow that's really holding some serious boundaries yeah though that's like that's impressive you know I'll come home some my kids are a little bit younger so Josh will be home. I'll come home at like eight o'clock and my youngest one will run to me and say, I'm hungry. Please feed me. I'm like, okay. I, I mean, right. I haven't even eaten and I need to go to the bathroom myself kind of thing. Right. Moms don't have those boundaries really. Yeah. But it's, but it's also a kind of thing where I'm like, 
did you not ask your dad? Did your dad not? Oh, no, no, no. Did you not? Did your dad not think that he needed to feed you? Did he think that what it was just like, like we're on the enterprise and you just said like <laughs> computer, feed me some whatever. And then right. it just shows up. Right. No, no. They didn't even like, neither, neither party thought about it. Right. They're like, <laughs> that's really. That yeah. is what mom is for. Mom is the only one who knows how food works in this house. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. That's how that works. Right. Only mom. <laughs> So can you talk a little bit, you know, I, I think now, especially with the pandemic, I think it's more accessible for more people to understand like the idea of compassion fatigue. Do you, you have to, I mean, you have to be, you're very connected to your patients. You're very emotionally connected to them. You take them home, you know, like you clearly have a very tight emotional bond with your, with your patients, where do you draw the line or do you, and then do you have to kind of struggle with compassion fatigue? You know, I've given out my cell number less. So patients don't text me as they, as much as they used to, obviously you guys can. I don't have your cell number. I do. If you believe <laughs> us. Yeah. So you can, you can text me. I mean, you know, I'm happy. I'm well, and to be honest, like until this moment, I was actually trying really hard to respect that line. Like, look, you probably got 20 other people who are lined up behind me who need to see you. And I was like, I come into your office. I'm like, yeah, I get to see her for five minutes and we're going to shoot the breeze. But I also don't want to overstep that being like, I mean, I know that we get along really well. And I have talked to everyone and everyone else about the fact that like one of the reasons I think my prognosis was so good and everything's been so great is because I really like and trust my doctor and that we see very eye to eye on things. Thank you. Thank you. But there is something about being like, this is the right person to be treating me. Like I, yes. if you said you have to learn how to do handstands in order to fix this, I'd be like, <laughs> okay. Okay. We're doing handstands. You guys, I'd be like, that sounds ridiculous, but you're the doctor. And you, so I like so deeply trusted you, but also I so deeply liked you that I'm like, this, this is the best partnership I could have thought of for someone to be guiding me through this morass. That means a lot to me, just so you know that on a very personal level, that's what keeps me going. This emotional fatigue thing. And I'll tell you this, I think that has to happen with people's various jobs. So when I say it, I love seeing my patients. They fill my cup, right? And it gets depleted. And if it gets filled again, that's why that I don't feel like I, again, I really do too much. I do. I understand that. And, you know, I have to kind of figure that out my, for myself, but I don't get burned out. That emotional fatigue is not really there because I do rely on my patients to help me through that, which seems, and I think that many oncologists, once they figure that out, when they're young, it's hard to figure out when they do it for long enough, then they actually, and anything you do in your life, right? If you see the positive in it, it actually gives you more energy to keep going. That's as simple as I can get. How can I go see 45 or 40 patients in like on my Buffalo, my North clinics are like 40 to 45 patients, just me seeing them. And you've seen the craziness at Rush. So like <laughs> my crazy clinics. So at the end of the day, I'm pretty numb, but it was a great day. Numb in the sense that you're like exhausted. Exhausted. I can't actually speak to another. As opposed to like 
I would never, I don't want to see one more person today. It's more like I am out of energy. I, I just can't have really any normal, I can't actually have word finding type of conversations with anybody, you know, <laughs> like there's just no like grunting and pointing. And, <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. I'm like food, bathroom, <laughs> like I'll help you with your backpack. That's about all I can do. You know, it's, yeah. it goes to like very like basic needs type, like, yeah. are you dying child? Yes. No, right. no Go over there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what happens at the end of those days. Yeah. It's like a flow chart. <laughs> like, are you dying? If the answer is no, then leave me alone. Then you're good. <laughs> if you are, are you dying? Yes. Go talk to your father. Call 911. Talk to me later. Uh, call 911. Wait. And I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Emotional fatigue, I think the, the era of pandemic, I think the pandemic has taught us that we do need to be better to ourselves. We really do. You know, we do need to have those, some of those boundaries there, you know, whatever you want to call them, boundaries, limits, whatever, you know, we do it to ourselves. I mean, no one is doing anything to me. It's me doing it to me. Right. But like I said, you also have to think about how lucky we are. The pandemic has been awful for so many people. Right. Um, and so I think you just rely on each other. I think there's more good than bad out there. I mean, that kind of just keeps me going. I'm curious what drew you to oncology from kind of, so like I'm thinking the path is like, oh, you go to med school and then you, you know, do all your rotations and you're like, what am I gonna focus on? I wanna do gynecology, OBG, right? You do the obstetrics gynecology. So I'm assuming this is my story that you had to do a rotation in oncology and a rotation in OBG. And you're like, I want to do these things together. Uh-uh. So I'm so wrong on that. Okay. So, okay. That's a good story though, Shloshi. It would have worked. Yeah. It would have worked. Yeah, it would have worked. <laughs> so when I went to med school and knew I wanted to probably do OB-GYN as um, uh, just for women's health purposes. I even thought about family medicine and delivering babies, but OBGYN was just more, you know, more subspecialized. Um, and so then my first year of med school, I got like the Dean's fellowship. And so then I um, got a kind of a paid summer to do ovarian cancer research. So then I was paired with a gynae oncologist who actually was my mentor. Funnily, like then I uh, was my mentor in residency and fellowship later. It was kind of, I've known him for like years and years. And so that kind of piqued my interest because I was like, huh, ovarian cancer, et cetera. And then when I started doing my clinical rotations in med school, um, I remember um, following a woman who got a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And, you know, there's just the nice, I mean, women with gynecologic malignancies, quite honestly, nicest women, real relationships. You know, like I said, a so much you have to like the surgery and the chemotherapy and the lifelong, you know, bond that you have is to me is what I wanted. I didn't want to just do surgery and not see my patients anymore. You know, I didn't want that. I also, so then when I went to rest, so I went into residency and only ranked residencies that had gyne onc fellowships just for the volume. So I knew that. And I matched um, uh, into the residency that I wanted to go to in residency then there was a choice for me to either go into, I wanted to do either a high risk OB and treat really sick women in obstetrics or go into gynae oncology. And I wouldn't be delivering babies anymore. I knew that there was a diff total difference. I think the thing that swayed me the most in gynae is, and this sounds weird, 
we're kind of the last cowboys. We kind of do it all, you know, and we're the people that call, like they call you when somebody's going to bleed out in labor and delivery. I didn't want to be dependent on anybody. Like I wanted to be the one to help not call somebody else. So those are the kind of what kind of framed my decisions, you know, so I'm very risk averse and I also risk mitigate. So I kind of know these things about myself. So hopefully I answered your question, but it was really yeah. the idea of the lifelong relationship. That's what I was really looking for. I like, I like the idea of last cowboys and especially you said like, we do everything, right? Like we cut it out, we'll zap it, we medicate it, we'll, yeah, we'll radiate the shit out of all it. Of like, it. <laughs> we'll do all yeah. of it. And yeah, it's really it. interesting because like, you think about primary care where you start, right? You're like, hey, this thing hurts. Um, they are kind of jack of all trades. And then you get so specialized where you're like, oh, we don't cut, we just medicate, right? Like we surgery. And then you actually come back around to where you're the last stead hold or whatever it's called, like a whole, you know, like stronghold, stronghold. Thank yeah. you. You're the yeah. last stronghold. Yeah. And you're like, oh no, we do everything. Cause you have run out of the other options. And now we come back to doing really a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, that also sounds like the cancer, I was going to say the cancers that you treat, they, they're not just a one prong thing, right? You have to do this and this and this, or, or this and this, or this and the third thing, but it's not like, oh, here's the one thing we're going to do for you. Rarely. So endometrial cancer, garden variety type, um, can be, I mean, you know, I mean, just not to say the kind, cause you know, not the exotic type, you know, that's the other. <laughs> I guess I had a somewhat exotic type. Yeah. You right. did. That's why yeah. that's where I was going with that. But um, Shailashi, see, you're really special, Shailashi. Did I tell I I don't maybe I didn't tell you this either. When I told Justin that, oh, it's like one percent of one percent of cancers or something, he's like, you just always have to be extra, don't you? <laughs> he's right. I was like, I guess so. Is, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so certain cancers we can just do one, just surgery and be done. But like I said, it's still lifelong follow-up because of the risk of recurrence, et cetera. And what we do also is so intimate, you know, our exams are, they're, you know, right. They're gynecologic exams, you know, oncologists don't ever want to do a pelvic exam, like general, you know, medical oncologists. Right. So, so that's why our relationship is such as it is because it's so intimate. We treat rare cancers, you know, like you said, it's multimodality. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do, I have to say this one thing. So I have to tell you this before we start wrapping, because I know that's where she is going. Cause we know you have Iftar today, right? And you've got stuff going on. You got what family time is, in town. What time got... is Iftar today? So it's not till I don't get to eat till I think almost eight, but my brother's visiting from Maryland. And so I have to drive to the South to, to my parents. That's the only, mm-hmm. where, that's are, my... where are, we can cut this out too, but where are your parents? They live in Palos Hills. Okay. Oh, that's, I knew yeah, there was okay. a reason. It was like the South. I was like, cause I think we talked that my, my parents lived in, our parents lived or, in Orleans, Orleans for the yeah. longest time. Oh, that's right. We're like neighbors. Yeah. I grew up in Orleans. Did you, guys go, so, to, did you go to Sandberg? So I went, I went to Sandberg. She, she went to I went to Stag. Oh my, oh my goodness. Yes, I know. I'm like from the other track. Um, you, oh, Nina. she went to IMSA, but, and then we moved when, um, Shale, she was already like almost through high school, but I was in, I was a senior yeah. and then they moved to Orlando when Kosha was going into eighth grade. Yeah. So you might, you might know this, Amina, but Shale, she has worked her entire life for reproductive rights and justice, right? Her entire life. She has, she started working at Planned Parenthood when she was 
19 or 20 and really everything is she wanted to be an OB because she really wanted to again help women like make those choices and stuff went into you know public health and it it just always has been about like women's right to choose and so then you give her this diagnosis oh this is a good story yeah you give her this diagnosis and it like the first time i mean all of us were like oh you caught it it was barely cancer right like now right, you right. have the diagnosis but honestly for me i was like you caught it early and now you have the diagnosis so now you have the resources you get to go see dr ahmed every 6 months to make sure right that's actually not a bad thing because now we'll be able to really like track it very closely the second time it came around in 2000 you know late 2018 or late 2019 and then she's like you know I have to get every they have to take everything out that's what Dr. Dr. Ahmed said and then she goes you'd think that my reproductive organs would be more grateful after <laughs> everything I have done to fight for the rights it's just so pissed I put that on a sweatshirt for her I have on a sweatshirt it's so great it's 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 a sweatshirt with like the um it's a the uterus and then the ovaries are like making a middle finger and then on the back is that quote I'm gonna get you one too I think you I would love that I would love that I would love that and I I like that is Shailushi in a, a nutshell it's just like taking it in okay bad you know this is bad I'm scared like this is we either have a lot to figure out but you know what god damn these damn this uterus <laughs> totally yeah, totally. Do you know how much I have done for you? <laughs> right. And you're kind. Right. <laughs> and exactly. you're kind. Yeah, right, exactly. And now, and this is the, this is the thanks I get. This is the thanks I get, you thanks asshole. Yeah. <laughs> right. I wanted to be an OBG for the longest time, from the time I was eight until the time I had to apply to med school. And I was like, I just want to skip all this med school stuff and just be a doctor. <laughs> and that was, and I wanted to go and work in the inner city and work with teens, actually with contraception and, um, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. Right. Basically like a full, full scope women's health clinic for young teens in like really difficult, you know, urban poverty situations. And then I was like, Oh, I have to do all this. This is hard. I don't want to do that stuff. <laughs> um, but I ended up going into public health and, uh, focusing on, uh, women's health from, uh, like the social political stuff around it. So kind of came back in a different way, but I mean, still, I mean, amazing, right? I mean, and so needed and so helpful, right? I mean, and like you said, everything we can do makes an impact, no matter which way you come at it. Yeah, absolutely. And we need all types, right? Like all types, all of it. Right. Well, and it's, it's, you know, it's sad. Both things are really sad. It is sad for somebody who finds out that they have endometrial cancer or ovarian cancer, and they always wanted to have children and now they can't. That's heartbreaking. It's also heartbreaking when you don't want to have children or you might die from having a child and you cannot terminate a pregnancy. Right. That's also heartbreaking. It's scary and heartbreaking on both ends. And I, you know, it's wrapping it back up. All of that is basically based in, we don't trust women. We don't believe women. There's a patriarchal approach to, let me tell you what's going on with you. hundred percent. Like a woman should have a right of their own body, period. I've had to do a hysterectomy on a 16 year old that did a back alley abortion because she was going to die. 
literally that happens in this day and age okay from like a very devout hispanic family this was years ago so nobody can tell me that you know you can't take that right away one of my attendings um this may look at my last right one of my attendings um was in new york doing his residency this is pre-Roe v. Wade. And the hospital was full of women with septic abortions, full, dying. Was this in Chicago? This was in New York. Okay. And then after Roe v. Wade, he's like, the hospitals were empty. Yeah. Empty. Like women's lives don't matter. I mean, is that is that what we're saying? You know, Cook County Hospital also used to have a ward that was basically like, it was a whole floor just for women who had had you know, we're septic from back alley abortions. Yes, yes. And our, so my mom's aunt, my mom's dad's youngest sister had an abortion in India when she was 19, had just gotten married, wanted to finish studies, got an infection, could never have kids, right? And that's, and that's even somebody having some autonomy over their body, but the sort of like the amount of this just speaks to me of like the amount of care that we give about thinking about women's health is just so like, I'm sure it'll be fine. Trust me, it'll be fine. Like that's how we approach it as a, as a species. So right now, which is like, it'll be fine. Trust me. I'm a guy. I'm going to tell you it's going to be fine. And then it's not fine, but it's so short. It's, it's not fine. It's so short-sighted. If you empower women in a civilization, civil, that, that society always does better. Always. There's, there's precedent. How much, how much was your understanding of your own culture, how much of that drove you to do what you do? And, and, and to empower women and think, like, I just want to wrap this up from the beginning. I, I don't, I, I feel like we didn't give this enough discussion is this idea of like, you had to cook and clean and your brothers, well, their wives will do that. Right. So, yeah. and not to, you know, not to slam on your mom. No, uh, no. Well, I mean, you know, she, she, you know, all parents do the best they can, you know, right. right? I mean, With it's reality, right? You, Absolutely. Right. Exactly. But you, you didn't succumb to that cultural um, understanding or those cultural norms, at what point were you like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're doing this. And how much of that was like the cultural drive where you're like, I'm not, I'm not succumbing to this. I was always very respect. I mean, still am very respectful to my parents. I do what they, you know, they, there's a bias still there in my career though. I never let that cultural bias influence me. If anything, it was the opposite, right? It makes you do more. Mm-hmm. How many men have told me that they can't, I can't do what I'm going to do, right? I was the first woman to graduate, my first female to graduate my fellowship. Are you serious? It was only men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I joined kind of a hospital-based group with older men. The surgeons' lounge were, surgeons lounge were all men. And let's be clear, you're not, you're not 70 years old. Like you are a young woman. So this is not, we're not talking like decades Ancient ago. history, yeah. Right. This is, you know, say about in my fellowship, right? 15, 20, 18 years ago, yeah, about. First woman to graduate. And men later as attendings telling me I couldn't do like an appendectomy. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm privileged to do bowel resections. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not calling you in. 
mean, so this is kind of the bullying behaviors that women have to deal with. And generation before me, it was even worse. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is, you know, what we do, what we do, and you do it without the cultural bias. You do it because it's right. And you do it because you want to help future generations. Mm -hmm. So I tell my girls that I'm doing whatever I'm doing to help you guys. You have to pay it forward and continue. Like that's really how that works. As, as, as you know, maybe narrow-minded or whatever as my mom was, because what that's what she knew, she still paved it forward for me. Well, you can only go so far from where you started, right? So your mom was an anesthesiologist and that was a huge step forward from where probably her parents were. Oh yeah, no education for her mom, right? Married at 16 and you know, that's how her mom was. So you can only do what you can do generation, you know, as you said. Yeah. I'm also just thinking about this now, which is, I mean, yeah, it's a yeah, duh, but also you don't think about it on the sort of in the moment now, which is our grandparents went through, like our parents and grandparents went through the same thing. British, you yes. know, occupation, yes, independence, yep. you know, all of, all of that stuff that it was, I mean, at that time, Every, everyone from Pakistan and India, because it was just one country, was going one country. through everything together, right? So there's also that trauma that comes forward of you, you know, I remember my mom saying like, there's points where you couldn't trust anyone unless they were part of your family. 100%. And have you seen those Indian movies back then? It was all, I, I watched so many from the Indian store, like growing up, they were all cry. You just cried the whole time. There was such rampant depression in that generation after partition, right? And at the time, et cetera, even before pre-partition. And so they carried that also as immigrants to this country. Yeah. I had asked my dad, what was it like after independence? Because he was born a couple months before independence. And so he was, you know, around five, six, he would go see the movies or whatever. I was like, what was that like? He's like, there was what you would, he's like, I guess nowadays you'd call it propaganda. He's like, but there are always these short films before the movie. You can only trust your fellow countrymen. It was very, you know, um, patriotic. And I can understand, like you're trying to create a sense of national unity after being, you know, sort of um, being occupied by the British and not having any ability to do anything for yourself for so long. I, you know, I always think about like, that's coming back, that's coming back around to now this whole like, you know, nationalism, Indian nationalism, it's coming back around now. Because that is the generation that's all pro Modi. All the Hindus in India are, and NRIs everywhere are all pro Modi because they grew up with that BS. True. That's true. And that's a whole nother set of trauma to carry forward. That's a whole nother set of trauma. You know, like honestly, any kind of hate in general is just wrong. Like you just have to just think about equality and no, those negative emotions don't go anywhere. And there's precedent for that. And yet here we are again. You know, it happened, right? That's the, that's the unfortunate part. So I was gonna ask you the penultimate question, which is um, what advice would you give? But you just gave really great advice and I don't necessarily wanna retread that unless you have something really different that you'd like to say. But this idea of paying it forward, I think is, you know, I make fun of Kosha because every time we ask this question- For multiple things. <laughs> yes, we ask every single guest this question. And one of early in when we started asking it, she would always end that by saying, that's good advice for us all. 
But it is like, I think every single time we've heard from someone, it is good advice for all of us to think about paying it forward or really focusing on one's identity. Like, who are you? What do you want? We interviewed my daughter, the child, child, non-binary child, my child, my older child uh, last week. And we asked them for advice and they said, trust your heart because your head's always going to come up with reasons that you shouldn't do what you want to do, but trust your heart. And I was like, holy crap, that's that's like the most brilliant, insightful thing I've ever heard any child totally right. ever say. That's actually true. And that's the kind of thing like we all need to remember as adults, like actually you should trust your heart. And and I like, you said, you said pay it forward. And then you said that your mom paved the way. And I actually think that both of those things are so important is, you know, one of the things that I actually just saw recently, you know, we're always like, oh, our kids will fix the world. Like the kids will fix it, this and that. I was like, you know what? Our parents thought that we were going to fix the world and we're still working on that. So it's like, we also have to help them pave that way and not just be like, our kids will fix it. So we don't have to do anything. Right. Um, So I like both of those, like pay it forward, but actually help pave it forward also. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a combined effort. Yes. So, um, as much as, I mean, I, I cannot believe it's been an hour and a half. I'm like, I just, <laughs> oh, yeah. I chatted to, I, I said to chat to Shulshi, I was like, I, oh my God, I told Amina that we'd be done by three 30. <laughs> um, we're like running out of time. But, um, but so our last question that we, oh, what were we going to say? Shulshi? Uh, well, my, my comment is basically like, this is as long as I've gotten to talk to Amina in the entire time I've yeah. known her yeah. and it's just reinforce the fact that and I've said this before if she weren't my doctor I would love to be best friends with her I, I would love that we we should get dinner I would okay. love that honestly I'm coming too I'm coming yes yes I would love that okay <laughs> can you I was like can you do that like yes. I don't again I'm just like I don't want to over because I just right again me being like you have so many people you're seeing maybe at the end of the day you're like I got to leave all this stuff here and I don't want to talk to anyone that's my patient. So no, not at all. But also like, maybe we go out to dinner and like, we don't talk about your cancer. You know what I'm saying? Like we talk about, yeah, we have mother, we have many many other things, things. things. many including how hard it is to raise children in this era, (laughs) in this era or like crazy moms or whatever. All of it. So, so our last question, and I prepped you for this. So like, we always have to prep people for this last question. About the familect, which is like, you know, how we speak weird with our families, F-A-M-I-L-E-C-T. And it essentially is like dialect within families, within small intimate groups. So like words, phrases that only mean something to your family, to, to your small little group, right? I got to tell you, I don't know that I have any. So here's the thing we have discovered is that people don't realize that they do because it's normal speak for you, right? Like it's normal. It has to be, right? Like that in your house because it me like you don't have to explain it every time. But is there any like, you know, is there any translations or toddler speak like stuff that your kids used to say, but now you still say it? My kids all have nicknames. Okay. Like we don't usually use their first. Like, you know, my oldest one, I call her Bubs just because that's what she was. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to hate me if she ever, ever hears this. And then my youngest one, this is so bad and she's not chubby at all, but we used to call her Chubbs when she was little, but then I had to change it to like Chup because 
because it's because everyone's like you're gonna give her a complex I was yeah like, right <laughs> right I mean so so we do we only use nicknames yeah so you call her Chup. Chup. Yeah, I don't call her Chup. It morphed. From, yeah. It morphed. It morphed because that is I'm awesome. I'm, because I'm like Chup. <laughs> you're like you're like. Well, I am a doctor in female health, so I don't think I should call her Chubs. <laughs> All my friends are like, "Are you kidding me with this?" And I was like, "What am I gonna do?" So there was part of that <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. Oh my god. And so, and I have to watch myself because now my 17 year old is like, Bubs, don't call me that, you know, Aww. kind of thing. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't, she's too sweet to tell me that. But I know that that's, I have to be good about that. Oh, oh, that's awesome. Chup. I like that you call her Chup, but so I, I have nicknames for everybody. And so my nicknames are always like, well, it started here and then it morphed <laughs> for all of these reasons. And that's totally. really what it is. And you're like, why do you call them Chup? And you're like, well, it started all the way when she was a baby. And then we called her Chubbs. But then we said, we should probably not call her Chubbs. So, <laughs> well, and that's exactly it, right? And so nobody would understand why you would call your daughter Chup. Right. Because it's not Chap. It's, it's like, not, it's, there's like it's not nothing. really a word. There's not nothing. Ed, right. I can cut this out, but right. what is your daughter's name? Manira. Okay, so it's not even like doesn't even rhyme. Doesn't even look. <laughs> There's nothing. <laughs> right. There's nothing. Right. Right. It's like when you see the baby, you're like, oh, you know, it's just like this this reflexive like nickname you want to, you know. Same with my older one. Like she's like, you know, like Bobby. You know, you kind of like they're yeah. squeezy. Oh yeah. yeah. What is so her then, name? Mariam. Yeah. See, like very much like why <laughs> would nothing. you come up with things? Right. It's not like right. so we always say like nicknames don't usually count because if you call someone teddy and their name is theodore that doesn't count yeah, yeah. but calling someone who's begins with an m doesn't even have a ch chop all the way out into left field yeah <laughs> and there's a reason for it and so you and your husband call her chup and yeah. everyone else is like that's manira <laughs> they're like what are you what are you saying and i'm like what else you know you kind of yeah oh it's like you don't, have, don't and then you're like don't worry about it. that's just what we call her like it's just yeah. the word yeah. yeah yeah so thank you so much for coming on amina oh I, you're welcome this is wonderful you are the last of the april birthday surprise series for shayla she and i can't think of anybody who is just a more perfect guest for us today thank you thank you i guess i really deeply appreciate you taking this hour and a half to spend time with us when you have other things going on so thank you well thank you thank you thank you all right it's my pleasure honestly uh, early eid mubarak for you thank you thank you for sure right. bye bye bye